Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of This is CX, our West Monroe Partners customer experience podcast. I'm Mike Manfredo. And this is Paul Hagen. Hey, Paul. Glad to have you back. I am glad to be back. <laughs> I know uh, you had a little bit of time off from the, the last episode that we had, and so looking forward to you joining me on our interview today with, uh, we've got two individuals from the company Spark Fund, which is a subscription-based provider of building energy systems, think lighting, HVAC, EV charging, to other businesses. So, you know, which I think is really kind of seems like a different business model than maybe traditional manufacturers or equipment resellers. And they're here to tell us and share with our audience their CX story of how they got their organization to focus on, invest in, and and really build their managing of CX from the ground up. So uh, I think we're, we're really lucky to be joined by Angela Ferrante and Emily Rizowski. So thank you, ladies, for joining us. Hello. Hi there. Well, uh, what I'd really like to do is uh, have both of you just tell us a little bit about who you are and your role at Spark Fund. And Angela, why don't we start with you? Yeah, hello. Really nice to be here and thank you for having us. My name is Angela Ferrante. Um, I am now an advisor and was for about five years the, the founding CMO at Spark Fund. So I took the company, we were about five, five, six of us when, when I joined and, and stood up sales and marketing and then grew the marketing function, uh, hired an Emily on, on customer experience, built out that, which we'll, we'll get into in a little bit. Uh, and I'm now an active advisor with the company. Great. Angela, how, how big is Spark Fund now? Oh gosh, we're about 60. 60 employees. So. 55. So relatively small, but uh, small, but mighty. Good. Indeed. Yep. And Emily, how about yourself? So uh, my name is Emily Rosowski, and my role at Spark Fund was really working in tandem with Angela to um, lead up the customer experience program. So when I came on uh, about a year and some change ago, it was really to start up the entire CX practice uh, in tandem with you know our CMO at the time, and um, you know making sure that that rolls out and that the company sees that as an objective. All right. Well, let's get into it. Um, I think Paul and I would would love to hear a little bit maybe of the CX origin story for Spark Fund. So Angela, um, obviously, this was something that you thought was important, brought to the executive level. Um, why ultimately did the executive decide to put resources or, or invest in CX? What did what did you tell them? What did they see? Yeah, so it was. I like the way you frame that the the origin story. It really was. I think it was a, a series of small revelations that led to us saying, kind of almost having a, a light bulb, but but duh moment, uh, if you will, around wow, we really need to put concerted resources behind what is effectively customer experience, and we have an interesting business, right? It's it's. Invo- it involves simplifying for a customer what is otherwise a, a chain and series of, of complex interactions and purchases. We're, we're trying to give them an easier way to upgrade and manage uh, and handle all of their energy systems within their buildings. Previously, that in- includes tons of vendor interactions, you know, 20, anywhere between three and 20 vendors. And so if you think about that, kind of our entire product is the customer experience. And, and our job was to simplify said customer experience. So for us to have, you know, we had more traditional, as any company does, functions, sales, marketing, 
technology, et cetera. Um, and they were, they were operating closely together, but we didn't have a, a, a group that was focused on looking at the, the solely the customer ex, uh, experience side of that or looking at those things from the customer experience. And it seemed pretty obvious. And so I put together kind of a, a, a presentation, but, but also just lots of conversations around making that more obvious to the rest of the executive team to say, look, you don't become, I think an example we used at the time, you don't become Virgin Atlantic or Virgin America from the airline, you know, in the airline side of things by accident. You really have to pay a lot of attention to how is a customer experiencing every single step of your your product or service. And so we felt like ultimately we needed that cohesive thread and and view to be able to improve our, our ultimate product and, and gain the traction we knew was possible in the market. That's real interesting. So what was the most effective uh, when you were actually pitching the idea of CX and, and the, mm-hmm. the consistency and the experience to the C-suite? Um, was it, you know, did it ring true right away to them? Did it take some convincing? What, what ultimately was the most effective in getting them to sign off? Yeah, I like that question. And I think, you know, if you you read, I guess, op-eds or, or sort of business publications, you, you see a lot of to make an effective pitch to the C-suite rooted in the numbers and, and everything, you know, data, data, data. And sure, I think that you have to be able to show and prove an ROI in the numbers. Otherwise, why would you be, why would you be taking on a new thing? But there really was more of a, a qualitative aspect, I think, that that started the, the presentation and, and made that effective, which was using examples and parallels in other industries. So the Virgin America example, there are all sorts of others, whether it's Amazon, others we can think about that have, have been really kind of built their business around customer experience transformation. So one where I think those parallels and examples of, of that were aspirational for us. And then two was looking at both the upside and potential downside if if it was ignored. Like what could happen if we didn't have a cohesive view, and 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 what could happen if we did? You know, where where could we go? What could the product look like? So painting a little bit of that that picture, I think, from a, a behavioral economics perspective, they say people respond better to the the, the threat of loss than the the kind of opportunistic side. Um, but I think it was a mix a mix of both of those at looking looking where our business could go. Nothing like fear as a motivator. That's right. Angela, it's interesting because you also talk, you know, I, we often we often see B2B companies or, you know, and, and, and execs, you know, wanting to see other B2B examples as opposed to consumer examples, mm-hmm. wanting to see in our industry, your industries, mm-hmm. energy and utilities. It sounds like you didn't have that problem. You're re, you really did reach outside the industry and, 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 and try to bring the execs along uh, along with those parallels. Yeah, I think I think that's right. I mean, I, I would have to look back at the presentation and I'm sure there was. Uh, at least one B2B example. But I think one reason why that worked for us and for our team was that what we are trying to do in and of itself within the B2B space is new. And most mm-hmm. of the parallels that we look at or look to as sort of exemplary are Netflix or other yeah. B2C type subscription businesses. So those have, have been the ones who p- have paved the way. So I think we were kind of used to looking at those for our, our aspiration and inspiration. Which is great. Looking at that operating model, because you know your operating model, like you said, is a subscription business. Even mm-hmm. if it's a B two B, it's a subscription business. It looks more like 
Netflix and maybe other, you know, B2B examples like, you know, uh, an equipment manufacturer. Yeah. And I actually, I actually think a cornerstone of the argument that, that was convincing and compelling was that, yes, this is B2B, but the buyers are still people. And that, nice. that, that with the times, you know, all things changing in our times, individuals at the consumer level have higher expectations and, and a higher bar for what the experiences that they purchase look like driven by the consumer space, right? We're used to Uber convenience and everything. Well, that is that is only naturally and logically seeping over into the, the business purchase decisions we make. And, and I think we, we see that every day. That's great. So Emily, I'd like to I'd like to ask you a little bit more about how is the position or how is CX structured within the organization? So um, you you mentioned that you were brought in to actually kind of run the practice. What does that practice look like? Where does it sit? Who do you roll up to? Yeah, great questions. I mean, I think this is an interesting framing because really when I look at the role of CX, specifically in our organization, which as Angela mentioned, really is our product is the customer experience in a lot of ways. Um, this role really is in its essence meant to be transitionatory. So um, it's not, when I was really looking at it and when we were both looking at it, it was meant to set the foundation for what it was that our company cared about and how we were going to set the vision of how our customers felt around working with us, which, you know, of course, translated into tactical things that we had to build and stand up. Um, but so when it was in, in its inception, it rolled up to Angela or the marketing function. So I was on more of a marketing team, but my role was from the get-go, uh, it still is extraordinarily cross-functional. So I would work very heavily with our product team. I worked very heavily with our delivery and um, subscriber services team, which I would categorize more like a support function, but is a little bit more um, nuanced than that since it encompasses a longer arc of our subscription customer longer term. Um, and right now, the customer experience really lives in two core places. One, our product team uh, spearheads that and actually our digital platform is our is called in our company the digital customer experience. And then our, our secondary place where this really lives and breathes daily now is in our delivery team. So these are the folks on the ground actually delivering our product to customers. So whether that is doing audits, whether that is installing or, you know, dealing with any sort of issues that come up with the pieces of equipment, um, both of those folks are now entrenched and, and carrying that torch as they execute every day. I love the fact that CX is very heavily involved in execution of the day-to-day. Um, I think that you know a lot of times organizations, CX feels a little bit either like white ivory tower-ish telling people what to do versus it seems very much embedded in the day-to-day and what, you know, the action that needs to take place. Mm-hmm. That's, I mean, that's certainly what the vision was going into it. And I think both Angela and I had many discussions at the very beginning of the, this inception, which was this will not be successful just in a advisory capacity. It really has to change what we do every single day. Um, and and I think it's really had an impact not just on, you know, how we respond to an angry customer or one that, you know, is, is um, you know, just onboarding with us, but also with how our strategy as a company has you know, adopted different technologies to help make the experience better. Like, for example, monitoring equipment, which is something that uh, CX was heavily involved in helping our company adopt to just 
make the experience better, both for us, but also for end customers to know what's going on in their buildings. So there's a lot of things that I think we've you know, successfully been able to move forward, but it certainly started with a vision of this will not work and we will not become, you know, the Virgin Atlantic vision that we had or the Amazon vision if we don't actually get our hands dirty, um, which certainly took a lot of cross-functional uh, collaboration and still does. Oh, yeah. One thing I'll add to that that so, rings so true. And, and thinking back, I think some of the, the kind of funny moments of seeing that in reality, it almost felt like we were making up terms and then seeing people use them and getting really excited about it. So when we first stood up this function, customer experience, you know, you got a lot of furrowed brows at what, what does that mean? What is that? Both from a just functionality or, or kind of functional perspective, as well as from an, a, a division within SparkFund. Uh, but, you know, I don't know, three months forward from that, as, as people saw it being both infused into various divisions throughout the company, as well as people saw this the CX group or, or Emily in that instance taking on specific initiatives and driving forward projects, you would hear people regularly say, oh, customer experience, that customer experience, this, and it was coming up in almost every single meeting. And, and it was being, you, know, you just hear people say it. And it was really kind of fun and, and exciting to hear this, this term that, that we had, you know, not term that we had coined, but term that we had brought to this organization um, that hadn't been there and, and starting to see that pick up. It was almost like a buzzword, you know, I mean, kind of made it a cool little buzzword that people could uh, bring into the conversation. Of course, there's meat behind that, but but just the adoption was interesting to watch. You know, it's it's funny because I, I I sometimes love in industries that you know, unlike the un, un, you know, are not as glamorous and maybe sexy, you know, I, uh, as others. And then you start talking about customer experience, you know, and and it, it is kind of a disconnect, right? We're talking about building management systems and and, and lighting, and you know, we're not talking about uh, you know a Nordstroms or you know a Burberry or something mm-hmm. like that. Um, do you have, you know, what are, you know, you're in the energy and utilities industry, you know, are there other kind of ch- unique challenges as, you know, trying to, again, get your employees thinking about it, but also, you know, getting your customers to think about it? Yeah, one, one thing I'll say, and and I've reflected on this, and I'm not sure if this is something that everybody in every industry says or or is actually true to us, but with if you consider one of our, our core jobs to be simplification, the simplification within our space is not simple. It is really messy. Like there are a lot of things that need to happen. If you, even simply, if you're going to buy a new HVAC, 17 different divisions that need to be coordinating with, and you know, 90,000 calls. Oh, that's an exaggeration, right? But <laughs> 90 calls that you're going to need to to make just a schedule, and then you have to work with your facilities team to make sure they're going to be there, but not when the rest of the employees are going to be there because it's disruptive and that's just a small sampling but it's it's really complicated and it's not you know fun stuff to think about for a lot of folks so so that was certainly one challenge to sort of think outside of the box uh, in a space that that people are not necessarily used to, to doing that regularly and, and something I'll just underscore there too, I think um, a lot of the work that we would do looking at other industries, looking at other you know successful subscription models uh, and things of that nature, a lot of them are solving, um, not all, but a lot of them are solving a very specific slice of the problem, right? Um, when you look at, let's just even say the customer experience of using Uber or you know uh, Lyft, 
they're solving a very specific point A to point B. Now, there's so many nuances to that problem, but that's one slice of someone getting from point A to point B, right? They have to worry about their calendar and scheduling and, you know, making reservations to the place they're going. There's a lot of other steps. What we're essentially trying to do is take our entire industry, which has so many different components that we are now in charge of, you know, everything from that building automation system to the installation, to the ongoing maintenance, to what happens when something goes wrong. That entire thing is basically a lot of different experiences built into one. So for us, this challenge was very specific to the complexity of our industry. And I'm sure there's other parallels. I know there's other parallels in other complex industries, but it just goes to, I think, show that there it really does have a holistic you need a holistic picture when you're solving this, which is slightly different, I think, than maybe, you know, some other very specific problems you could solve. Well, I think you br- you bring up a really good point, which is, you know, every industry has got, you know, the products and services they have have a complexity or a life cycle to them. And looking at that complexity or life cycle is really important, right? Be, you know, you, like you said, the Uber is a, a very transactional type mm-hmm. of model, low overhead, you know, and it's interesting when I think about, again, how you've structured or at least evolved the position. It started with marketing, but it, the marketing side was really for the brand, you know, connecting the brand and the vision. It was like, what, what are we trying to become? But you pivoted to the execution because most of the experience in long life cycle, um, long, you know, complicated types mm-hmm. of things happens not in the not in the brand and the acquisition but it's in the retention yeah. and the organic growth and all of those things. And so your pivot, you know, every time I see someone in a, in a complex industry that's a marketing role, my, I have a red flag that goes up because it's, well, are you in the execution and the delivery? Because that's where all, you know, 95% of the experience happens. And, and, and it sounds like you guys made that transition nicely. I think that's such a good and interesting point. And we hadn't thought about it from that perspective necessarily. I will also say not only is 95% of the, the experience there, of the pain is there, right? Someone didn't just want a shinier HVAC. They they really cared about the year-long process that it took to to procure it and then actually, you know, 20-year process of of managing it. So that was where, you know, when you talk about our pivot, we started out as as more of a financing company that that was more transactional, providing better, easier financing for someone to just procure that HVAC system. But we realized that that wasn't going to cut it solely focusing on that point in the life cycle, that it really was the longer term uh, experience that, that was again, 99 or whatever percent of, of the pain. And, you know, there's some, probably some interesting ties then we've, we've had, we've had few uh, um, some past podcasts on customer success uh, relative to customer experience, uh, you know, that the tech B2B tech industry that, you know, it's largely gone from a from a licensed, you know, software to, uh, you know, subscription model. Um, and there's probably some, you know, that would be rich, rich and interesting conversation for another time, too. But, you know, pro- you know, I could see I could see a transition into the future, too, of adding this notion of customer success role of, you know, what is customer success and how do you ma- help you know, really elevate what you're doing to, we're not just providing these um, energy systems and, and managing it, but but helping customers succeed at managing their buildings, right? In a kind of a broader way, which, which you know, potentially redefines, you know, and then to that, to that extent, it gets into the financial measures of as your customers succeed, um, you know, organic growth and that, you know, renewals of, uh, of your products, you know, really gets into the, the financial 
um, return on investment that you know you talked about in the beginning. Yeah, that's exactly right. And I'm glad you brought that up, Paul, because in reality, this is where I think at the get-go, we spent a lot of time and we built out not just a customer success function, but actually something much broader. I alluded to it a little earlier, but it's called subscriber services. So we really look at this as an ongoing relationship that we have with the customer. So the second we sign somebody on, that customer uh, subscriber services representative is in charge of, you know, not just knowing this customer for 30 minutes on an onboard, but actually what happens over the life cycle of, you know, the 10 year term that we're working on with them. So um, for us, it certainly is driving a lot of the, um, the actual function. And that's a department within our team that, um, you know, the CX function actually helped start, figure out what the, the strategy is for that and, and really begin to build the infrastructure around, you know, in conjunction with that team. Um, but it was certainly a CX consideration of what do we actually do? Because, you know, unlike a transactional model, we are with these customers for five, seven, 10 years. And, you know, we want them to renew at the end of that cycle, which takes ongoing work and proactive maintenance, you know, where we are identifying problems before they even happen, which is a huge part of our product, but is also the customer experience. So that's where these things become intertwined and why why CX is so embedded in subscriber services, our digital product, kind of everything uh, in delivery in between. And that renewal can't happen just the, you know, with the sales organization one month before <laughs> the renewal is. That's totally right. Oh my God. No, if your HVAC goes down, you don't care how, how charming the salesperson is one month before. Um, and, you know, and that's, and that's oftentimes a, a question that not only the CX team is asking, but our, our sales team is asking that too, because they are getting those questions when they're doing the pitch. What happens in year nine when we have a 10-year contract? You know, Are you incentivized to engage with us and, and how? Um, I mean, and we're, we're actively investing in new technologies to help us even get more savings for the customer because we realize, and, and you know, these technologies are pretty advanced. You know, they, they're, a lot of them aren't even yep. fully in market yet. So you know, we, we are really able to spearhead and, and I think in a lot of ways push forward new experiences for the customer that make managing energy technology systems better because we're able to represent a lot of customers, not just one. Yeah, nice. Let me let me pivot a little bit into to measurement before as we as we talked about you know was in, in prep for this for this podcast. Um, you had mentioned that you you know when you started up you were using Net Promoter Score. You found that it didn't work for you. You've evolved some. I'm imagining with the customer success people you know a lot of the customer success organizations use a broader notion of customer health. But just kind of curious, talk to us about the, your journey. Why didn't Net Promoter not work? Why did it not work? And, you know, what are you using today to, to kind of measure your success, you know, how, how you're doing on customer experience and quantify the financial value? Yeah, so so I can definitely address this. When we were starting to look at measurement, of course, we're looking at what are the standard terms and, and um, standard metrics that companies use across the board, you know, so that we can stay in line with what best practices are. So we started exploring the notion of, okay, let's try a net promoter score. Now, the interesting thing about our organization is because we have have such a long cycle with so many of these folks. And because so many of these interactions are very nuanced and complex, where we actually need to check in with multiple types of people at multiple different points in time, what we were finding is that these NPS numbers actually weren't telling us much. And that, you know, one person would give us one score and one person would give us another score. And actually, like, it, it wasn't really a clear picture. So what we ended up doing was, you know, instead of taking all of the, uh, you know, 
lower scores or removing them, upper scores, we actually just ended up having conversations with folks around a likelihood to recommend. So it's the same sort of language as NPS. But what that did was actually, number one, and the other part of that was we found that online asking, you know, the little plugins that a lot of these larger companies that are more consumer facing will do, you put Mm -hmm. see them pop up on your website, um, were not helpful. Because, you know, when when, uh, we have, you know, a 10% or even less than that conversion rate of those, if we don't actually see how something ha- how how we did when a piece of equipment wasn't doing well or when we deployed people on ground like we actually really need to get every single one of those data points because we're with these folks for a long term so it just really didn't give us that holistic picture and so we went with more of a um on the phone model where every single time we deployed, we would con- we would call up our com- customers, have conversations with each individual person to get a holistic picture of what we were actually doing. Um, I think maybe as we continue to expand and get larger and larger customer base, we'll begin to institute something that actually gives us more data around an NPS. But at this stage in the game, it just really didn't make sense. Like if the objective is what is the health of our customer relationships, which you mentioned is a lot of what people are looking at, NPS wasn't really cutting it for what we wanted to understand. So, you know, the number is helpful just to give the company a readout, but um, we really had to evolve it beyond just, what do you think, one to 10? It, no, and it's it's interesting, right? Because in B2B, you probably don't have as many customers, right. you know, so I talk, I say a lot of B2B companies, hey, you only have 50 customers, you're not going to be, you are actually statistically significant if you got 45 out of 50 customers that you're on the phone with. That's um, right. Yeah, you beat you beat me to the punch on that. That's exactly right for us because the volume is lower yeah. because the 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 numbers are higher. That that NPS, you know, it wasn't just let's get a whole bunch of stats on that. We needed more of a deep dive, deep dive, qualitative view. Talk about the financial value then. So beyond the metric, you know, you're still um, trying to quantify or rationalize, you know, all of this investment. What what are you using? You know, in terms of talking to the rest of the executive team about executive team about the the return on investment for your efforts. So I think that it it ultimately comes down, at least at this stage, to us for us to conversions and looking at how customers are converting at each each step in the process, and that includes post initial purchase, right? That includes renewals and referrals and so forth. But looking at each juncture in our in our funnel was was the most important, and and. We break out, Emily can share more about this, but we, we're sort of breaking out specific customer experience improvement initiatives or interventions by stage of the funnel. And then that would allow us to look at conversions before and after that particular that particular intervention was introduced or tested. And one thing I'll just add to that is we certainly are driving conversions. That's a huge thing for us because a lot of this experience, well, you know, the pre-experience is also really hairy, right? An audit is pretty challenging. You know, some of these things where you actually have to get people on ground and give financial information. Like there's a lot you have to unpack before a sale happens. And so CX, behavioral science interventions were deployed before a sale just as much as they were after a sale. So in a lot of ways, a lot of our conversions we could directly tie or, you know, could in part tie to some of the CX work that we were doing. So I think those are intermingled for sure. And, you know, the interventions we had at each stage, you know, were measured, uh, sure, but it really was tied to the larger goal of driving a customer forward. And uh, have you guys started looking at, you know, beyond conversions, renewals? Because I would imagine at some point renewals are a bigger piece of your 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 overall pie, and and you know there are big drivers of renewals, you know, based on the experience. 
So great question. And it certainly is something that uh, I'll answer this in two ways. One, uh, the way that we typically try to sell is a land and expand model. So when we work with a customer, we want them to have multiple locations because our subscription scales really easily. So in that case, with our customers that we're in market with now, we certainly have been able to land and expand. So instead of calling it a referral, it's more of an expansion. So we certainly are looking at that and the impact of our delivery and our experience to drive that sale. Now, the other thing that I'll, I'll use to answer it is our, our contracts are long. They are five to 10 years. So and as a startup, right? Like we are, we've been around for five years. So only some of our customers are finally at that space of maturing. And as any company can tell you, their first few customers aren't really always their target customers at the end. So certainly we are looking at those metrics, but to be honest, I don't think those are, that renewal number is not going to be something that we are really jazzed about or looking towards until probably about another year or two when we get some really strong, um, customers come through the whole system and want to renew those. Now, we're still doing this for land and expand, so it's not uh, negating that, but it's just a slightly different way to, to frame the metric. Yep. Yep. No, that's a, which, is, which is great. So one of the things I'd like to do now is talk a little bit about actually um, the relationship between leaders. So focusing on how the CX rolling into marketing, but then also certainly we talked on the operational component of it. So uh, let me start with you, Angela, as mm -hmm. at the time when this started, the CMO, what were you looking for from your CX leader or, or what were you, how are you looking to engage with Emily? So I, I think I was looking forward to answer the first part of that. It was an interesting and, and somewhat challenging to find set of, of skill sets one, it was someone who was able to communicate and corral buy-in really well. So they needed to be able to, to sort of sell, particularly within this new division that didn't yet have a track record, be able to sell a new concept and why this was going to actually meet help us meet business goals. Also, someone who could work really well cross-functionally. Every single initiative that we were looking at, not one of them to start sat within one group only. So that required a lot of kind of toggling between different different groups, and and again that that championing a new a new concept. Uh, and then lastly, kind of a comfort with chaos, frankly, right? The ability to wade through a lot of complex details and and make sense of those and and help rise to the the surface what was most most important. So those were the things that I think I was most looking for and 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 that Emily really brought brought to the table and drove forward uh, as a as a CX CX leader. I love those messages to our emerging CX leaders. You got to be able to sell this, you got to be able to talk other people's language and and translate it in other parts of the organization. And you got to be able to deal with chaos. <laughs> yep. Great. And Emily, how about you as the individual who's being brought in to to lead the these CX efforts? Where did you need Angela and, and where did she help you most as you were getting on board and, and really trying to roll your sleeves up? Yeah, I think this is a kind of piggybacking on that question. A lot of the demands of this were, you know, selling internally. And in that case, you really also need to get executive buy-in, right? So when you have an executive who's actually able to take the case of why CX matters and where uh, it's going to have, add value, that, that was the biggest thing that I think Angela really spearheaded within the organization. And specifically, we had some clear targets of within the organization 
what are the what are the types of roles or what are the people that are really going to need to, to champion this most? And how can we make sure that their leadership and their bosses and the, the executive team at that level understand the strategy top down? So a lot of it was getting that executive buy-in as well as kind of, you know, starve, staving off some of the blockers when you are trying to pitch something internally. So a lot of it was, um, you know, even within a company kind of politicking, what is the right way to frame and what kind of support are we going to need to pass something through to actually get to a customer? Um, so I, I do think this is a unique challenge of setting up a CX organization to be extremely tactical um, that that I would honestly suggest, this was a big lesson learned for me, you know, how do we actually make sure that this isn't just something fluffy and nice on the front end of a marketing campaign, but is actually something that the company does and executes, which is where you do need executive buy-in to make sure the teams that also execute are aware of, of what this is and why it matters to them. So, so that's, I really think where the executive function was, you know, amongst the, the bigger picture, it, it, critical in driving the success of this forward. Yeah, it seems like a real symbiotic relationship kind of be, be in between opening doors and then executing once you're in there. So um, I think that's that's really interesting. I think a really great message to um, those CX leaders, both in terms of those, those that are responsible for execution and then those that are really responsible as that executive sponsor to, to make this successful at the end of the day uh, across the organization. So guys, hey, last question here. Um, you know, thinking about 2019, we're we're already into it. You know, would love to hear what your, you know, what's what's top of the agenda. What are you, you know, as you're pushing this forward, you've done a lot of stuff. What's what are the top three things that you're you're focused on this year? Yeah, great question. Um, I think I don't know if it's exactly three, but specifically for us in 2018, we did a lot of building, right? So we revamped our onboard so that it was actually really customer friendly. We developed a chatbot to engage with our customers. Um, you know, we we built a uh, we worked with the product team to really help them understand and scope out what are the the, the means of a digital online experience. So all of this work was really laying the foundation in 2018. And 2019 is about executing on the foundation that we laid. So both all of those things really coming to fruition. And I think in particular, making the customer experience online really awesome. So our dev team now, you know, initially they had, uh, we're using the term portal. We were going to build a portal for our customers. And through the work that we were doing collectively with product, they actually ended up changing the, the actual name of the tools that they're building to be digital customer experience. So when you talk about, you kind of embedding this message throughout the organization, I think there in particular, we had a lot of traction. So that's a huge priority for the company. I think Secondarily, also making sure that our delivery is uh, continuing to improve. So we uh, built up, built out the you know concept of the subscriber services function. This year is a year of actually building and executing on that, as well as our delivery. So um, we're really staffing up in uh, not just people, but also in capacity. We are rolling out more monitoring technology to make the experience really great proactively with maintenance and and. Um, you know, giving our customers insight into what's going on in their building. So I, I think it's, uh, you know, really making sure that we're executing on the things that we laid the groundwork for in 2018. And then the other thing I'll just hit on is not only are we doing this for Spark Fund, but we work with a, a partnership model. So we work with some of the largest uh, companies, utilities, uh, oil and energy, gas providers in the world. And what we are helping them do is take these nuggets of customer experience and deliver it to their customers as well. So um, 
what we're doing not only is going to have an impact on Spark Fund, but also in the people who we are going to market with. Um, and that's a huge priority is taking what we know we need to do, executing on it for us, and also executing on it for our partners. So um, it's not one thing, it's like a lot of things. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, very interesting. I'm curious, just quick, um, you know, people have talked about recession. Have you guys thought about within, you know, again, the, the customer experience realm, um, you know, what impacts a recession might have on, on your efforts or, you know, recession proofing your customer experience efforts? I don't know that, that yeah, I, I don't know that the, the recession angle is is necessarily hits customer experience in particular. I think I think it speaks more broadly to us as a business, and I think we're rel- you know, there are all sorts of nuances there, but I think we're relatively well positioned because one angle and one motivation in certain instances when it comes to energy technology procurement and management is cost savings. So if, if, if we're bringing mm-hmm. cost savings, which we are, we're we're, we're again in, in a good spot for for if if and when there there's a downturn. Great. All right. Well, um, Angela, Emily, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with Paul and I today. Um, I thought it was a really interesting conversation. It sounds like you guys are doing some really fascinating things, uh, both in terms of the the business that you're in, the business model that you guys are are looking to execute on, and then how CX is is really getting into the meat of everything that's being done on a daily basis. So thank you so much for joining us. Uh, We really appreciate you taking the time. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Thank you. It was a lot of fun. It was fun to reflect on the last year and a half uh, of what we've created here and, and appreciate your, your synthesis and contributions. Excellent. All right. And uh, thank you, everyone, for uh, joining us today, listening in. I uh, hope you enjoyed this conversation and we look forward to having uh, one in the future. So thank you very much and have a great rest of your day. Mm-hmm.